there. This is the Jill Cruz podcast, and this is Jill Cruz. And today I had a very fascinating conversation with my colleague, Michaela Parisi. Michaela is a counselor, a psychotherapist, and she uses psychotherapy, right? Counseling. But she also uses something called neural feedback. And so we go into pretty good detail about what neural feedback is and why it's so awesome and how it augments her work, her therapy work with her clients. And Michaela specializes in working with people with trauma. So that's pretty much everybody, but (laughs) her work is very special in that she's using, you know, these pretty sophisticated tools in conjunction with the therapy. So we talk about that and what she's doing. We talk about what is trauma and how do you know if you have suffered from trauma and how oftentimes we, you know, pretty much everybody has been trained to suppress our emotions and to not really feel those intense emotions. So we talked about some ways to know if you should be delving into that and things you can do to get a little bit deeper with those emotions instead of squashing them down and and causing more pain and suffering in the long run. So uh, this is a great episode. I think you're going to enjoy it. So hello, Michaela. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, sure. I'm super excited because from uh, what I've read about you and what you described to me about your work, I it's just inc- an incredibly, I, it sounds like a very unique approach. So I'd love to start by asking, what type of people do you work with? Like, what kind of problems do people come to you with? And then we'll go into how you help them from there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm a licensed professional counselor, which by, by all means, pretty much means I'm a therapist. In Colorado, we can go by a lot of different terms. So a counselor, a therapist, a psychotherapist in this state can be a lot of different things, but uh, those are all the, the qualifications that I can basically hold and advertise myself as at this point. So I'm a therapist and I work primarily with adult women who've experienced trauma. So I'd say about 75% of my practices caseload right now is women ages like 20 to 40 in the Denver area who have experienced some sort of trauma. That can be emotional, physical, sexual, all sorts of trauma there. I love counseling. I have been a client in counseling for almost a decade now, really fell in love with the way that it changed my life. Despite that initial phone call, getting into counseling is is really scary sometimes, but the changes Mm. that it's had on my life really are it's was what provoked me to, to go and get my master's in counseling. And then from there, uh, I started working at a neurofeedback clinic where I learned a lot about how we can understand the brain. It's quite a different modality from counseling. From there, I started incorporating neurofeedback into counseling sessions and really try to approach counseling from a more holistic perspective. Mm-hmm. And we do work with kiddos. We do work with older individuals as well. But the majority of our clients are adult women who have experienced some sort of trauma. The word trauma, I was talking to someone recently and they were like, trauma is just so popular these days. Mm-hmm. It's like a it's like a fad, right? Like obviously people humans have been experiencing trauma since the beginning of human existence. Mm-hmm. But now it's it's like a thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm curious. And somebody else was saying, you know, there's trauma with a capital T and, and trauma with a small T. I, I had never heard that. So let's say someone's listening and they're like, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people will be like, yeah, I, I've had trauma. Mm-hmm. But then there might be other people who are like, you know, I think we tend to minimize 
our experiences a lot, right? What does it mean to experience trauma? Yeah, it's such a good question. And you hit the nail on the head that a lot of people do minimize trauma. What I tell most people when they ask me this question is we could pull out the dictionary, right? And find the definition and go over it together and say, okay, like, does this match what you've experienced? Yes or no. And then from there, we can kind of develop a game plan for counseling or for neurofeedback together. But what really matters most about trauma is how the individual interprets what's happened to them. So it's a subjective experience. Therefore, what happens to you on a day-to-day basis might feel traumatic to you. And therefore, your brain and your body respond in a way that is, you know, a result of trauma. You get adrenaline, you get cortisol, you have these stress hormones, your sleep is affected, you have anxiety. That is a direct result of experience, experiencing trauma. Somebody in, I don't know, Africa, another country who experiences quite a different day, day in, day out, might not feel or have the same bodily reaction to trauma that one might overhear. That doesn't mean it's not trauma. It just means that they don't need the same form of treatment that somebody is needing from trauma they've experienced in your situation. So when we look at trauma, we do need to understand, okay, what have I taken from the experience of what's happened to me? Does it feel traumatic? Does it not? And then we do exactly what you've just said is, okay, did I learn a long time ago to neglect my emotions, to potentially put trauma on the back burner because it's too much to feel? And is that why I'm not actually calling this a trauma? Mm. Are there certain societal stereotypes that we attach to trauma and what it should quote unquote be in order to feel deserving of that label in a way? It's a really complex conversation, but minimizing the way that we feel leads to all sorts of diagnoses and, you know, just negative feelings that, that stick with our body. They stick around for a long time. So understanding that piece and then kind of backtracking to, okay, how much does it matter to really even label something as having trauma? I don't know all the time. For some people, it's helpful. Some people, it's not. But if we're trying to understand it, I need to know how an experience has affected you as an individual. Wow. Okay. Thank you. That's, that's amazing. I love that. I may have experienced a similar thing as, let's say, my, someone in my family. We grew up in the same house. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm like, you know, whatever. And for someone, my sibling, perhaps it may may have been very traumatic, but also not only that, but how it manifests physically in the body can vary. That's amazing. And what, what I was thinking of when you were speaking was, is, you know, we, we help women lose weight mostly. I mean, we have the, the motto, our, our mantra is, you know, weight loss is a byproduct of improved health. Mm -hmm. So we're approaching it from very much a holistic health perspective, not like, Oh, you need to lose 20 pounds this month. And we're, we're like the opposite of that. But, um, I see behaviors in people. So some, a lot of our clients are in therapy, which is fantastic. I love that. We, we actually collaborate with a lot of therapists and psychiatrists, but when someone hasn't been in therapy and they have these patterns of behavior and they don't understand why, Mm -hmm. then actually what we do is we say, maybe you should see a therapist. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's always a little delicate of a subject, but it's our professional duty to say that. I'm just wondering if there are people walking around with trauma, they don't even realize it's trauma, right? Again, like suppressing those emotions. And then it's affecting their behavior and they may not even understand why. 100%. 
Yes, absolutely. And you touched on a really um, interesting point there, which is, okay, how do I suggest somebody goes to therapy because they seem like they might have experienced trauma that is impacting their behaviors. They just might not have the insight or the awareness at this point yet to, to kind of delve into that. So in a way, how do we, one, validate that for them and say like, this might be going on, but then also normalize it. Like this might be going on, but it doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means that oh. 99% of the population has probably experienced some sort of trauma, right? And right. the big T and little T is a conversation we could get into as well, but just like the depth of that trauma and how it's impacted you is one thing, but how do we say, it sounds like this might be affecting you you're not weak because of it. And this might be the repercussion, which is the behavior that we're trying to change. And in order to change the behavior, we kind of have to go in reverse and understand ourselves like internally without changing the behavior first, which is a really scary thing for a lot of people yeah. to come to terms with it. It like shakes us to our core when we have to wonder yeah. like what's wrong with me and take mm-hmm. some ownership around the trauma, which is a delicate balance between self-blame and just acceptance. So I'm not sure right. if I answered your question right there, but yeah, I think it's a really delicate conversation that I imagine you have to go into with clients as well. Yeah. And also, you know, it's not really our job to say, well, I think this person has suffered trauma. It's more like, cause we bring all our tools and stuff and we do mindset coaching, but we're not therapists. So there's a line there, <laughs> right? Yeah. But we may notice that you know, even through the changing the food or, you know, whatever it is that we're working on them with, the patterns of behavior are still recurring. And it's like, I don't know what the root cause of this is, but I think that it could be something much deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see, I witness a lot of what I think of as shame and self-judgment, mm-hmm. self-sabotage, even self-hatred, right? I hate my body. I, you know, so many women will say that I hate the way my body looks. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm disgusted with myself is a thing that we hear a lot. So, you know, it's heartbreaking and I don't, I'm not, it's not up to me to figure out what all the root causes are of that, but I see it. And sometimes people are self-aware because they've been to therapy <laughs> and sometimes people aren't. So that it was more like less a, a question, you know, but a topic of conversation because I want to bring it up on this podcast for people who are listening, who might be thinking, hmm. I wonder if someone's trying to lose weight Mm -hmm. and they're going through all the motions of dieting, but they keep this pattern of losing weight, gaining, losing weight, gaining. First of all, that in and of itself is traumatic. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of women come to us who have diet trauma, but even before that, there is something that, that spurred them to do that and then Mm -hmm. to gain the weight back, you know, and it's just, I want to bring awareness to the fact that it could be trauma that is this deeper underlying sort of cause. I don't know if cause is the right word, but, you know, provoking that behavior. Absolutely. I mean, we can look at it from like a mental health perspective and a physiological perspective because they go hand in hand, right? So if you experience a trauma at a certain point in life, your body reacts to that with stress, you know, the stress reaction Mm -hmm. in the body, you could probably speak to that better than I can. And then hormones are affected and then sleep affected and then we're kind of wondering in this like cyclical effect of all of these things that are going on with us like where's the chicken where's the egg we don't know we get really frustrated 
And women are taught from such a young age to blame themselves. Like what I hear you say, like even in the narrative of kind of what goes on in your head and what you hear in your clients' heads are like, I hate myself essentially. Like this is almost like my fault. I am disgusted with myself in a way where we're not really looking at external factors that probably impacted not only that inner dialogue. So whether you heard mom saying that or mom Mm -hmm. looking at the mirror or mom not wearing certain clothes and then you kind of absorbed all of that and that becomes kind of this, this fuel to the flame that might be building as a young woman, kind of trying to understand your body and how to be in it, which is already really difficult. But then we're also starting to internalize it in a way where it's like, okay, is that actually my voice? Is that like Um, actually what I think about myself? Or is this what I've really been conditioned to learn over and over um, and over again? Because we see, I believe it's as young as like five years old, even younger in women, like calorie restriction and like uh, body hatred. These narratives start so, so young. And I want to say it's even close to... I'm not um, an expert in like adolescence, but I believe it's as young as like two to three years old, both boys and girls are starting to fit into these gender roles. Like they recognize that they need to fit into this category in order to be accepted into society when that's feminine or masculine. So we get this so young, we get this ingrained yeah. into us where we have to really get older and go, okay, well, what do I know to be true about myself? Like, do I actually find, you know, my belly or my legs or whatever it is disgusting? Or is this what I've been taught to think? And Mm. I actually didn't quite get the chance because I was a child. Like I didn't have the choice to stop and think for myself on this. But now I do as an adult, which can be simultaneously really empowering, but also there's a lot of grief within that where we have to kind of get younger versions of ourselves and go, Oh my God. Like I, I didn't get the chance to yeah. to have somebody model this to me correctly, to think for myself. But there's a moment of sitting with that grief that a lot of people have a hard time doing. And I mean, myself included, I'm no expert on all of this, but I've kind of struggled with my own food body stuff, just like I think most women do it at some point in their life. And yeah. the cathartic process of sitting with those emotions actually tends to be what tells the nervous system like, okay, we can calm down now. Like we're safe now. We're not living in fight or flight response, which then takes down those stress levels, helps hormones regulate. And therefore we're not reaching for the shitty food. We're a little bit more mindful about what we're doing and have a little more of that natural energy to go for a walk or just take care of ourselves in holistic ways. So this cyclical pattern of chicken and egg is a lot less negative. It's like a a more Mm -hmm. positive reinforcement cycle from there. Oh, I love that. That's incredible. That's so incredible what you've described because once we we can allow ourselves to feel that grief, that sadness and and anger, you know, when I've done my yeah. own inner work, I've actually never worked with a therapist. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of the Hendricks, uh, Gay and Katie Hendricks. They're wow. both PhD psychotherapists. He's she's a dance and movement therapist. He's like a you know traditional psychotherapist. But they've created like this coaching program, which is like mindset coaching and stuff. A lot of therapists get the training. One thing that you know I've really learned through going through their you know work was that I had suppressed so many emotions. Yeah. I was always kind of like the you know, don't make a big deal out of it. Just chill out. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Jill's the calm, cool, collective one. She doesn't, mm-hmm. she doesn't get upset. She doesn't get angry. Yeah. I'm 52 years old. This is like two years ago that I discovered all this stuff about myself. 
I thought mm-hmm. I actually was proud of the fact that I was like calm, cool, and collected. And I don't think yeah. there's anything wrong with it. There's that's still like part of my persona. But in the process, I had taught myself to be really good at just letting things slide. Mm-hmm. But actually, there were some things that really I, I had a lot of anger about and sadness yeah. about. And so when I went in and experienced those, kind of re-experienced those times in my life, especially during my adolescent years, there was a lot of crying that had to be done, you know, and there was a lot of anger that had to be, you know, kind of ranting mm-hmm. and stuff. So it feels great when you're on the other side, but when you're in it, it's, it's awful. So I think it is very scary. It's empowering afterwards, but it's scary. And well, that's why people do that with a professional like you. <laughs> they don't yeah. do it alone. <laughs> well, it's scary, right? For us to tap into that alone in the, in the very beginning, at least, right? We've never flexed this muscle. We need somebody mm-hmm. to show us especially as women, um, that there's permission to be angry. I'm not sure if you've yeah. heard of the book, um, Rage Becomes Her, I'm forgetting the name Ooh. of the author. Ooh, I'm going to look that one up. It's incredible. And really what it comes back to is the the anger that we suppress as women. It, it focuses on women. And you know we could go into this whole conversation on men as well. But for the sake of today's conversation on women, I mean, we are taught in so, so, so many ways. Like the whole book just feels almost like it's quite story-like in the way it, it, it tells you these statistics, but it's just like statistic after statistic of how all of these physical and mental health related diseases that we see coming up are related to suppressed rage. And like, what wow. happens if we are allowed to experience rage? Like it is a pretty incredible incredible thing. And myself, even in therapy, I've worked with two therapists primarily in the last decade or so. And one of them focuses on gestalt therapy, which is mm-hmm. a really somatic form of, yeah. of therapy and intervention. So there is a lot of talking, but it's also a lot of like somatic work with body movement. Mm-hmm. And I mean, my first session with her, and I'll be, this was after like eight years of doing talk therapy. First session, she was working out of her home in a barn we got a, a tennis racket and went and just like nailed the hay, just like hit it as hard <laughs> as we could. And it was really scary. I was like, okay, well, like it feels safe and it feels like there's emotions that need to come out. And like, I do this for work. Like I know this should be good for me. But even in that place where this woman was so, so safe and modeling mm-hmm. it for me, I was like, mm, okay, I'm going to give like 50% of my rage to this. Like, I don't know. It feels a little <laughs> weird. Yeah. And she would um, like put her hands on my shoulders and feel for like the shaking that comes out when you get rageful. It's like the energy mm-hmm. just hitting your body. So it's not stuck in there and you don't really yeah. know it's there until it's yeah. like really shown how to come out. And so sometimes I think talk therapy is the right intervention. Sometimes like moving your body, like if we look mm-hmm. at the fear cycle, you need to move your body in order to like get energy out so that that fear yeah. cycle is not like stuck. And as women, there are not many opportunities to do that in a safe way. So I think that the nutrition piece and the exercise piece, like it's such basic advice for people, right? Like on surface level usually, but it is so crucial to mental health as well. Like we have to look at people as this whole picture. Yeah. But it's sort of like, I think it's, we have to be dynamic, like you as a professional, me as a professional. That's why we have a lot of therapists who refer to us because- And, and vice versa, because sometimes I can see that, oh, if this person could just get 
less of the addictive carbs and some protein in and some healthy fats and good quality fats, and maybe they're walking every day, things lighten up and they can make that progress, you know? Uh, so you might see that. You might see that and say, well, this person could use, you know, nutrition therapy, but it's not always easy to know. Like if you eat well and you're physically active, your brain functions better. And you're going to be feel better. You're going to be more open, a better mood, like you're more open to therapy. So that's great, but that doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to kind of, like you said, it's a holistic process. And we're not always sure, like you said, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. You know, if they eat better, will they feel a lot better and and then be able to do, you know, more of the mindset stuff? Or is eating better, like not even, like it's not an option because yeah. they need to deal with that emotional stuff first. And I, and I think every, everybody's unique, but it does have to be a holistic approach. There should be synergy, mm-hmm. you know, between all of these different approaches. But I do want to ask you about neurofeedback yeah. because I, I would imagine that there are people listening who are like, what's neurofeedback? Mm-hmm. And I share with you that I, we used to use it when I worked in functional medicine. And it's an amazing therapy that we saw really huge results with clients. There were patients in in that case. I was working with a doctor. They came with a a lot of physical chronic illnesses, like really Mm -hmm. like they've had Lyme for 20 years or Mm -hmm. mold toxicity or Parkinson's. And so we kind of had to do some of that nutrition and, and medical healing. And then we would send them to the neurofeedback and it would just take them from like you can't see because it's a podcast, but you know, here to here, meaning like a, a, a five and how they feel or a three and how they feel to like an eight or a nine just yeah. from doing neurofeedback. So that was a big preamble. Tell, tell us how you use neurofeedback. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that was great. So um, like I said, my master's is in counseling and then I ended up working at a neurofeedback clinic. And I too, in the beginning was like, I don't know what this is. Like, I really don't understand it. It's a huge like learning curve in the beginning to kind of conceptualize like, we're changing electrical activity in the brain. Like, what does that even mean? Really, what does that mean? We don't know. What we basically do with neurofeedback is teach the brain to re-regulate and to kind of let go of old stuff patterns that it's used um, for, you know, whether it's from social conditioning, it's partly genetics, it's trauma that we've experienced. All these patterns come from life events and genetics. Um, But we teach the brain to kind of loosen, for lack of a better term, some of those patterns so that people have better access to making the behavioral change that they like logically know they want. So for example, for the people who just cannot get themselves to go and like eat healthier carbs and healthier fats, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, I know I need this. Like I know logically I want to do this. I know it will make me feel better, but I just can't get myself to do it. We really need to look at this, not only in counseling, because counseling is such a huge piece to this, but from Mm -hmm. like a neurological perspective, what's going on in the brain that might keep this unique individual from creating the change that they want for themselves? Because if it was that easy, they'd just go do it. But there's obviously like a roadblock we're hitting, right? So mm-hmm. enter neurofeedback where we start with something called a QEEG brain map, where if people come in and they get this cute little like swim cap looking thing on their head, has 19 different electrodes on the inside that are measuring electrical activity on the surface of the skull. And what that helps us understand is electrical activity deeper in the brain and these deeper structures and where basically neurons are overfiring, underfiring, what lobes of the brain brain are um, overworking, underworking, 
because we have this finite amount of electrical activity going on. So we want to make sure that it's distributed into the right locations and working for us rather than against us. So throughout a neurofeedback program, it's like somewhere around 40-ish sessions. My more complex trauma cases end up closer to 60, but research shows us 40 is where we're really getting this like solid change in the brain. You come in for these sessions twice a week from that brain map where we say, okay, here's where we're seeing patterns of trauma. Here's where we're seeing patterns of a head injury or ADD or, um, you know, inflammation. There's all these different things we can see. Mm -hmm. We start to teach the brain to let go of that through operant conditioning. So during a neurofeedback session, we just sit in a cozy chair. We put electrodes on the skull. It's attached with this kind of like goofy paste. And those electrodes are picking up electrical activity and the locations we've learned need some training. So on my program, the electrodes are plugged into an amplifier. I can see on my program on the computer what these microvoltage measurements are. So for example, if you have a lot of high beta, which is this like fight or flight mode in the brain in your frontal lobe, you might be overthinking and be kind of emotionally, emotionally reactive. So as you're just sitting, you watch Netflix, you have some headphones on. As you're sitting, you're just going to naturally have some fluctuations in the brain. We don't need to provoke that. It's just going to naturally shift. So if you come in and you start at, say, like 10 microvoltage measurements, and then you start to calm down a little bit and you dip down to 9.8, computer picks up that reading and then you get some sort of feedback. So it might be like a ding or a sound in the background. What that's telling your brain is, oh, you're doing the right thing because your brain is designed to like stimulus. It likes bright mm. light, likes to hear sounds. So then you just keep watching Netflix. Maybe it jumps up to a 10.5 in that specific location. We're asking the high beta to come down so it doesn't get a sound. And this mm-hmm. computer, excuse me, the TV screen starts to get dark as well. So then mm. your brain goes, oh, okay, how do I get back to that sound? Let me bring it back down to a 10.3. So you get another ding and Uh, Your brain goes, ooh, I like that. Okay, 10.1, ding, so on and so forth. So the whole session is just a bunch of dings and like layered over (laughs) and over. And your brain basically takes that feedback in, organizes it, and starts to learn to re-regulate on its own. So the cool thing about this really is we're working with the brain. We're not like adding a chemical or a substance or a pill that's saying, okay, high beta, like force it down, right? Because... Mm -hmm that's not natural. Like the high beta is up for a reason. We have fight or flight mode going on for a reason and probably was there to keep us safe at some point. So we really do want to honor it and go, okay, it's there. But if the brain naturally feels good and wants to lower and learn how to do that on its own, it will. So that through those, you know, 40 plus sessions, you get that muscle memory pretty darn well, you know, air quotes, muscle memory. So that when you leave, if you're in a stressful situation outside of our session, you will still get a high beta response. You should, your body should react in that way, but you have better access to shifting out of it more quickly and not like getting stuck in that anxiety or that Mm. stressful state moving forward. Wow. That's amazing. I'm just remembering when you're describing, actually my daughter got the brain map, the QEEG. She never actually got the therapy because the lady was like, 
you know, I, I really don't see the need for this right now. Like it, it, it could help anybody, I guess. But she was like, you're fine. It's a long story why we were there in the first place. But I remember her having this thing on her head and it yeah. was cool. And I remember thinking, well, all you have to do is watch movies like this is this looks yeah. like fun. You know, <laughs> the woman who did it locally in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, where I am, She's a brilliant person. You know, I mean, this stuff, I think it's one of those things that potentially people could be like, wow, that sounds pretty woo-woo. But the people I've known who've done neurofeedback, including you, are all very, very smart, caring, you know, science-minded people. So... I think it's it's it sounds like such a wonderful thing to go along with the therapy, you know, because exactly. then you're giving them that opportunity to to talk or maybe move. I don't know if you do somatic therapy as well, but it's very holistic. And I love what you said too. How in our society right now, pretty I mean, you probably know the statistics better than I don't even know the statistics, but the number of people who are dealing with anxiety, depression in our country right now, and other psychiatric you know, much more severe psychiatric conditions. And, and after COVID, the pandemic, everything has gotten way worse. And mm-hmm. the answer is always just a pill, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like, well, not always, because there are people like you, but it's very common that it's like, well, oh, you have depression. Well, let's just give you a pill to fix that. And it's like, no, that's happening for a reason. Mm-hmm. We're just going to take, not that I'm against medications, because I think that they're absolutely necessary in certain cases, but Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be the first thing that people go to. Mm -hmm. And education is such a big piece of that. It's like, we don't know that there's another option. The majority of people who end up in my office have been in talk therapy for years and they're like, okay, I've reached my limit. I've tried medications. They aren't working. I've done all these things. I'm at my wit's end. This mm. seems woo-woo-y, but I'm going to give it a shot. And those end up being the clients usually with the best results because they're more open to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is, I, I think I heard a statistic the other day that like 80% of adults are on at least one medication. Oh my God. 80% of adults, right? And there's also a lot of research, which actually has a lot of pushback as well coming out around depression not actually being something that can be treated with um, an antidepressant, which is right. quite shocking to like conceptualize. Like, why are we giving out antidepressants if we don't know for sure that they work? Because depression is, yes, in some cases, there are just like bad luck genetics that come into play where you get all of these different interacting genes that are... Um, contributing to depressive symptoms. But for most people, it's not that. It is a reaction to your environment. Mm-hmm. And you are not like clinically depressed. It's not like this is something you're born with and then you're stuck with and then you need a pill for. It's something we need to understand is like a reaction to your environment. And though it doesn't feel good, it's an accurate response, right? If I have people right. arguing around me all the time, if I have an abusive partner, if I lost my mom really young, of course, I'm going to feel some depression. I should, I need to sit with that grief. But where we're missing the mark with people is like, how do we teach them to feel the full range of emotions without feeling so attached to one or another? Like I have to feel joy or if I'm depressed, I I, I stay here because this is Mm -hmm. who I am, right? Like we are fluctuating human beings. And with neurofeedback, the really cool thing about it is we can we can see on a screen, like it's a really validating experience. You might remember it from mm-hmm. your daughter. Like these are the patterns that contribute to your 
symptoms. It's not a diagnostic tool. I can't say you have depression or you have ADHD, but I can say you have symptoms associated with it. And there's mm-hmm. a way out and there's a way out without a pill should you decide to take it. And I agree with what you said. Like there is a really great place for medications in many, many moments, but they are not, medication is not designed and antidepressants and mental health medications are not designed to be like long-term fixes for the most part. Right. And there's some cases where they are, but like for the most part, these are meant to be like short-term solutions so we Mm -hmm. can find the other more natural solutions like in a best case scenario and very few people are educated on that when they're actually being prescribed so Mm -hmm. coming back to it it's just education on like you have options like what is the best option for you i am here to support whatever that is but unless all the options are laid out in a really clear way that makes it easy for the average individual to understand right without like interference from big pharma or whatever these other, you know, <laughs> right. the agendas that they're pushing, we really need to tell people what their options are and let them take it from there, which is why podcasts like this are important. We need to be able to tell people what, what's out there. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the agenda, like you said, the big pharma and the, you know, they, the doctors come and they get wined and dined, I guess, not officially, but on, you know, under the radar, like, they're courted and and the the truth is i think a lot of doctors are so busy that you know that it's in and out in and out in and out with the patients yeah. and you know if it's the difference between helping someone by giving them a pill or not helping them at all uh, you can't blame doctors sometimes for doing that i, I think it's the system is designed in a way just for profit mm-hmm. i mean neurofeedback is not going to make billions and billions of dollars for some companies so you know, the agenda is certainly not there. But and so I agree with you that education is so important. Once you start, I've seen this being in functional medicine and alternative, you know, health practices for years and years and years. It's like a light bulb kind of sometimes for a lot of people, the switch goes on and they go, wait a minute. I, you mean, I have control here as a, as a patient, like I have a say in this matter, you know, I, I, and, and unfortunately a lot of people are out there doing, having to do their own research because their doctors are not presenting these options in a balanced way. And so, but it's cool when you see people who are like, Whoa, I'm, I'm empowered. I'm going to, I'm going to question my doctor. I'm, and if if he or she doesn't answer the way I want, I'm going to find a new doctor. And I always say that, like I say that about, I just did a a video about hormones today. And I was like, if your doctor tells you, if you're 50 years old or, you know, you're going through perimenopause, menopause, and your doctor doesn't know anything about bioidentical hormones, you need a new doctor. (laughs) It's such a huge piece to the puzzle, right? And you know, I I should kind of preface everything or I guess not preface, but mention that like my license doesn't allow me to recommend medications or to be Mm -hmm. involved with medication in that way. So I do defer to doctors and we do need to have this like collaborative experience. They're not the enemy, but um, what we can see is electrical activity that they can't see. So we kind of Mm -hmm. do need to collaborate in that way. But going back to what you said there, I mean, the best predictor of behavioral change in therapy alone, this isn't neurofeedback, in therapy is having an authentic connection and having good rapport with your therapist, right? Yes. So put that simply, you have to like your therapist and feel like they understand you in order to make your own behavioral change. If you're just going to the first person that comes along, 
Like it, you can't expect to have a good outcome. And I think that probably goes hand in hand with what you are doing, but it when does. I do calls and I have people where it's like, I don't know if we like click on the phone or I don't know if I have a therapist on my team who's going to like really click with you for whatever reason. And I will call that out. I'll be like, okay, you're trying to start therapy. Like, I want you to have a good experience. Like, I don't want you to be one of the people who go to therapy for five sessions and go, why do people do this? This makes no sense. I don't understand why we're talking about my feelings. Like, that doesn't help anybody, right? So I usually tell people, like, the best predictor of you getting what you want is liking your therapist and feeling close to them. So you don't have that after the first few sessions. Break up with them and be honest. Be like, it's not you. It's just this. It's like, the sooner you can do that in any relationship and know, <laughs> this is what I know to be true about myself. This is the feeling I have. And maybe yeah. it's a feeling we need to talk about together, but maybe this just isn't it because the therapist probably feels the exact same way. They're just doing their best yeah. to help you. The more we can move through that and get the right match, the better everybody feels, the more successful the field is, like right. everybody wins. Yeah, I've I've seen that research for doctors too because I've studied really? motivational interviewing. I don't know if you are aware with motivational yeah. interviewing, but I remember when I learned that they said that that's a predictor of success with yes. with doctor patient relationships. So it, it makes it totally makes sense. Yeah. So wow, I think this this conversation has been educational. I think for for me and I think for listeners are going to learn a lot of things that they never knew about, but it was also really, you know, I just really appreciated the conversation around the emotions and how important it is for us to express our emotions and and the image of you in a barn (laughs) hitting hay with our tennis racket. (laughs) It's good. If I had a barn to do it, I would do it every day. (laughs) Well, I tell people, I'm like, you know, you can always go upstairs or into your bedroom, close the door and then smash on the pillow. But I think it's, I should put the disclaimer, do not try this at home. Like work with someone, a professional, if you want to work through this stuff, don't, don't go and do it on your own. You know, it's, you need that, that loving guidance, that safe, safe place and that professional who can kind of, you know, (laughs) make sure that you are staying safe. Yeah. So thank you so much, Michaela. I really appreciate this conversation. Where are you in Colorado? Yeah, I'm in Denver, right over near Sloan's Lake. So like central Denver, um, in a little chunk of the, of the city called Edgewater. Okay. Yeah. I have a, I've, I did a conference out in Colorado, uh, last year. So I have a little crew of people that I know I'll, I'll make sure I highlight this podcast episode to them because I, I just love your whole vibe. Like I feel really comfortable with you. And I think, like you said, it's so important for people to feel comfortable, but the fact that you bring in the neural feedback is just like taking it to a whole nother level. Um, so I appreciate, I, I appreciate your work from the understanding that I have of it. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation as well. It's so fun to, to speak with like-minded individuals and I love the nutrition piece. Like keep it up. I think it's such a big piece to the puzzle that can be very complex and overwhelming for some people. So I really do appreciate what you do as well. Thank you. Thanks for being here today with me. Yeah. Thank you so much. You have a good one. 
Well, that was an amazing conversation with Michaela Parisi. You know, I just really appreciated, uh, in particular, the conversation around suppressing our emotions, but also just how cool it is that she uses a very integrative approach to mental health. So you can find Michaela. Her business is called Connected Brain Counseling. And she is, as we discussed, in the Denver area of Colorado. So if you are in that state, you can reach out to her. If you are out of state, she does actually have a way to do do neural feedback. Not everybody is a candidate for remote neural feedback, but some people are. So if you're interested in that, you can definitely reach out to Michaela. Her website is connectedbraincounseling.com. So check that out. And thank you so much for listening today. Uh, If you are looking for more, we have lots of podcast episodes coming out almost every day. And uh, we have our blog, which is at winweightloss.com forward slash blog. That's winweightloss.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening.